Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Richard Thaler, the Ralph and Dorothy Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago's Graduate School of Business. He has made extensive contributions to our understanding of behavior challenging the traditional model of rational choice. He's one of the true pioneers in the area known as behavioral economics. And in 2003, with his colleague Cass Sunstein, he wrote provocative articles for the University of Chicago Law Review and the American Economics Review, defending what the authors called libertarian paternalism. And in a recent episode of Econ Talk, Edward Glazer was critical of Thaler and Sunstein's ideas. So I thought we'd give Richard Thaler a chance to defend himself. Richard, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, this idea of libertarian paternalism, uh, one of your papers, you you. Your title claims it's not an oxymoron. Why don't you tell us uh, what that is? What is libertarian paternalism? Well, maybe let's begin by defining some terms. So by paternalism, all we mean is attempting to make people better off as judged by themselves. So if I do something for you and my goal is to make you happy um, by your own lights, then uh, I'm calling that paternalism. Uh, libertarian, um, you're, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the term. But for this, we just mean a policy that does not restrict anyone's freedom to choose. Non-coercive. Non-coercive, correct. And um, uh, we believe that uh, both terms are... Uh, particularly unpopular these days. Yeah. It's hard to find anyone who, uh, outside of an economics department, that's willing to call themselves libertarian. And there's no greater crime than calling yourself a paternalist. But uh, at least using the definitions I've suggested, uh, we think both are attractive and both are possible. And why would it be justified? Why would it be justified to act in a non-coercive way in someone else's uh, self-interest? What would that mean in practice? Well, uh, the the first and most important point we make is that policymakers, be those working for government or in the private sector, uh, anyone who has to de- determine uh, rules and operating procedures has to choose something. And uh, there's no way around that. So an, an, an example we use to motivate our paper, uh, it's not quite a hypothetical example, but let's consider it that, is uh, the example of a cafeteria director. Um, the cafeteria could be anywhere, uh, let's say it's in a school, but it could be in a company. And uh, the cafeteria director discovers that lots of details influence what people eat. Let's say the order of the food. Maybe the things that are placed at the beginning or the end are more likely to be selected, or the things at eye level. Um, anyway, uh, she learns this fact and then is confronted with a choice which is how to arrange the food. So she could arrange the food in a way to um, make people as healthy as possible or as fat as possible, or 
She could do it in such a way as to maximize the bribes she gets from suppliers. There's uh, all kinds of alternatives. But the point is that she has to pick some arrangement. And certainly picking the arrangement that's designed to make people better off is as defensible as any. And uh, we think it's more defensible than any. Well, I like that example, and I, I want to encourage our listeners to take a look at some of the original papers that, that we're talking about here that we'll put up uh, links to at the EconTalk website. That's a fascinating example, and on the surface, it seems rather neutral. Surely the person in charge, the manager, surely she should choose the order or the placement of these items to make the cafeteria cafeteria customers as happy as possible. That's not quite though. You're really asking something. You're asking something stronger than that in the paper, which is that's easy in a, in a sense, right? How, how if it's easy, then uh, uh, tell me about it. Well, I'm going to I'm going to take the way you phrase the example in the paper. In the paper, you say, actually, let's back up a minute. One of your insights, which I think is one of the things that makes this area so interesting, is that the placement of the of the articles may matter, right? right. That that's that's an important thing to start with. So so the claim the claim is that if uh, if you put the ice cream first and then the fruit, people are more likely to take ice cream, even though the fruit after going there day after day they they know there's fruit, but there's something so appealing and tempting about the ice cream they take the ice cream. Whereas if they put the fruit first, if if the manager puts the fruit first, people are more likely to take the fruit. Now, those kind of challenges, uh, you know, it's it's a big issue in survey design. It's a big issue in in choices that you talk about. Order matters. How the questions framed, the choices framed matters. The status quo matters. The level at which these things are set at might matter. But in the simple case of ice cream and fruit, your claim is that if the ice cream is is tempting to people. Uh, she should put the fruit first. Well, I'm just saying that she has to put them in some order. And that the idea that she can somehow avoid this choice, that's that's an illusion. There has to be some order. Right. And there's no neutral placement. Well, she could kind of move them around. She could. could, (laughs) I mean, she could say that you can make a very principled argument that she should choose an order at random. And I think that's that's a defensible position, um, but I think it's an extremist position. And um, I, I'm, I'm not such an... I think a... An extremist libertarian might defend that view, though I, I think it, they'd be hard-pressed to, to really defend that view. Well, I'll, I'll cast myself as an extremist libertarian. I, I would not defend that view. I think that's that's the wrong um, extremist libertarian position. I think the extremist libertarian position would be in a private sector – let's stick with a company case now, not a school case. In a company case, companies set up their cafeterias in a way to attract employees, so they have a natural incentive – to array their food choices and everything else in the company, be it benefit plans, work environment, monetary and non-monetary benefits, they have an incentive to attract employees, and so therefore their incentive is to make employees happy. 
So why wouldn't that be the default that would emerge from a market solution? And why would you even worry about this idea of, of uh, paternalism? Why would there be anything different? That well, is, that is, if if a manager uh, is corrupt and takes bribes from uh, suppliers, as you mentioned earlier, and puts the food or chooses bad food uh, because she's corrupt, she'll pay a price in the marketplace. Well, I, I mean, let, let's uh, move to the topic of saving at least briefly. Maybe we will cycle back to that. But um, we, we know that for various historical reasons, uh, in, for defined contribution plans, which haven't been around for all that long, uh, the default option has typically been to not join the plan. So when an employee first becomes eligible for a 401k plan, they typically receive some notice in the mail that says, you're now eligible for this plan, and if you'd like to join please fill out that form. And virtually all companies um, ran their pension plans that way. Now, what we've learned is that if you switch the default and make the default that uh, so that when uh, people become eligible for the plan, they get a letter that says, you're now eligible for the plan, and unless you fill out this form, we're going to enroll you. Now, a standard economic analysis of this would say two things. One is that this won't make any difference. These benefits are worth many thousands of dollars. The cost of filling out a form is trivial, so this will have no effect. Uh, but secondly, I think the argument you were making a minute ago would be that if one of these is in fact better than the other, counter to expectations, then companies will certainly have the incentive to adopt the, the better one. And uh, what we see is both of those predictions are wrong. So the uh, automatic enrollment has huge effects, um, sometimes as much as uh, a 40% increase in, in enrollments. Uh, eventually, most people figure out it's a good idea to join, but uh, it happens much faster with automatic enrollment. And uh, essentially, in, until a few years ago, virtually no companies did this, what I'm calling the right way. Um, and uh, now, gradually, they've come around to uh, adopting to do it what I think is a better way. Well, that's a very nice example. And, and I, let's, let's take the empirical side as true that requiring people to opt out rather than having the default be to uh, have to force people to opt in uh, encourages people to join uh, to save more. I think that's, that's very plausible, and I think the uh, – and I, I believe that. Uh, and I think the standard arguments that, are, that economists would give for that, that difference emerging of procrastination, transaction costs are, are not very – uh, convincing, because as you point out, these are very large amounts of money, and the transactions costs are relatively small. So let's say that's true. Okay. W why wouldn't wh – what's the implication of that other than uh, you've uncovered an attractive way for firms to compete in the marketplace, and firms that adopt that will the, – the better way will thrive, and the ones that don't uh, will not thrive? 
Well, but the argument you were making earlier was that they will have already figured that out. And the point is they haven't. Well, they have. They just needed your help. I, you know, there are $20 bills on the sidewalk for a while before somebody figures out how to pick them up. But, but let's say, let's say. Well, that but it, let's go back to the cafeteria. You're suggesting that we needn't worry about a paternalistic way of arranging the food because surely if this cafeteria is in the private sector, they will have already figured that out. Well, actually, I'm, I'm making a different point there. I, I don't think we need to worry about a paternal. I don't think it's paternalistic in the normal sense of the word. I think it's self-interested on the part of the uh, of the company to try to find those those things that make their employees happy. The real question is, in these situations where it's difficult to define, so, let me say it differently. In these situations where uh, people have trouble finding their own self-interest, I don't understand why a third party is going to be any better. That, that's my challenge to this, uh, this train of thought. I don't understand why, for example, if uh, – I'm not – I don't know why the, the company manager would put the ice cream uh, – not serve ice cream, say. But why that would necessarily be in my self-interest if I like ice cream. It's not clear to me what the, what the perfectly benevolent manager would, would do in that situation. I understand what the benevolent – what the manager would do in, in her own self-interest. She should try to make people come and work at her firm and and uh, come to the cafeteria. But if she is truly benevolent, okay. what should she do? Well, I think that she should uh, – let, let, let's, uh, let, let's continue on the savings example for a minute okay. um, and uh, talk about another detail of the uh, 401k plan. Uh Something that companies have been very reluctant to do um, is to offer their employees advice about how to invest. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you'll be happy to hear that the, uh, the government has something to do with that, <laughs> um, uh, in particular, the current Labor Department has been particularly uh, dull-witted on, on this particular front. But... Meaning, uh, mean, on which side? They, they oh, discourage advice? Um, well, let me come back to okay. that. Uh, so I'll, I'll elaborate on that in a minute. But um, uh, what uh, a, a point that uh, is often missed, and, and a point that I think uh, Ed Glazer doesn't really appreciate, is that there are lots of economies of scale in many situations. So... In, in a typical uh, company, most of the workers know approximately nothing about investing. Uh, surveys reveal that they they think that uh, their, their, the company they work for stock is safer than a mutual fund, where I think virtually every economist on earth thinks that investing in your own company is the dumbest thing you can do. They, and uh, there's a whole host of of equivalent uh, things you can point to that people are unsophisticated about investing. Now, it it seems likely that in almost any company there will be someone who's more sophisticated than the median employee who can offer what will be sensible advice. Uh, now, I call that uh, paternalism. And 
I think a good pension plan will have a default investment fund that is chosen to help the unsophisticated investors. And uh, again, I call that paternalism. Uh, you may want to call it self-interested, but I, I think that's just arguing about words. We're uh, both aiming for the same thing, which is to pick a fund that uh, the employees will is is our best guess as to what they would pick if they uh, went out and got a PhD in finance. Well, uh, let me disagree with you a little bit there. It's very again very interesting example. Um, you're surely right that many individuals don't have uh, as much knowledge as a PhD in finance, and we don't have as much knowledge as a medical doctor or a car mechanic unless we are one of those folks. So what we do in, in the real world is some of us blunder forward and make stupid mistakes, obviously. Some of us learn from those mistakes. Some of us don't. Uh, but most of us go out and try to find advice from people who we think uh, at least have a chance of having our self-interested heart. Those are friends, relatives so-called unbiased sources. Now, where's the evidence that most of us go out and, and get advice? Uh, well, I don't know. When I go to a doctor, I don't just look at a random look through the phone book. Maybe some people do. When I go get my car repaired, I ask around. I say, who do you use? Did you like them? Uh, when, I, when we go in and choose uh, uh, all kinds of things, we, we, we read consumer reports. We ask our friends. We ask okay. our parents. We ask well, our children. I, I don't know. We get advice from lots of places. Well, uh, this is so. This is research by introspection. Uh, we've done some somewhat more systematic research in this domain. We did one survey of uh, Cornell faculty members, asking them how they went about um, choosing their asset allocation in the extremely generous defined contribution pension plan at Cornell, mm -hmm. uh, and we asked them how much time they spent on this, this will be hundreds of thousands of dollars for the typical faculty member. Um, what, what we found is the typical person spent less than half an hour. The most, like, the most frequent person they asked advice from turned out to be the clerk who was in charge of receiving the forms that they had to fill out in order to become an employee. So, uh, yes, it's true that people have lots of incentives to go seek expert advice, but the evidence is they don't. Well, I guess I guess your uh, presumption about the rationality of Cornell University professors might be different than, than that of the average uh, listener's uh, presumption, but let, let's take that example. Uh, I don't spend a lot of time on my allocation. Uh, I've made a decision a long time ago to invest in index mutual funds, which I think is roughly in line with this mythical PhD in finance advice that we'd get. Mm -hmm. um, so the amount of time I spend isn't isn't really the the right issue. But no, no, it's the amount of time you spent when when you first made that decision, and if in half an hour you decided to put all of your money into a money market because the clerk told you that you're crazy to invest anything in stocks, then since we know that the typical person makes... You're typical in this regard that most people make no changes to their plan. Rebalancing is extremely rare. 
And uh, so the fact that they made no not much of a time investment initially can have profound effects, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cost. Oh, no doubt. I do rebalance, by the way, uh, for what it's worth, but I, I suppose I'm unusual. Uh, I, I think the real question, though, is and I, and on the empirical side, I, I would I would add the subscriptions to and purchases of Money Magazine and other uh, consumer reports, as I mentioned before. I, I do think people do turn to advice, and I do think they turn to friends. <clears throat> but here's the real question: If you're right, which which again, I think there's certainly some evidence that you're right. The question is how big the problem is that people don't quote spend enough time on their uh, financial decisions or their marital decisions or all the other myriad of choices we make in life, who, who should make the decisions for them? And in, in life, we choose who we ask for help. And you're right. Some people don't ask for enough help. They marry people who are unfit for them. They choose bad portfolios. They buy cars that are that are bad fit for their family uh, size or their demographics or their age or their comfort or their height. People make mistakes all the time. The real question is who who should help them? And now, in the cases we've mentioned so far, which have, uh, which I think we actually pretty much agree on, we've talked about private help. We've talked about, uh, for example, an arranged marriage. I think arranged marriages should be legal. Most people don't like them anymore, but we understand that there's a certain wisdom to an arranged marriage. It, they don't they don't do very well in the marketplace, but there's a wisdom to it. That's a voluntary choice to get help. If I work for a company that has lots of paternalistic attributes, discounts for the healthcare club in the, the fitness club in the company, or a healthy option in the in the company cafeteria, if I choose to join a company like that because I have self control issues or I think it'll help me, I have no problem with that. The problem I have is with the government, which is where the, I think this really hits the road, and you, and you admit as much in your paper that many libertarians will, will be okay with this. Uh, in a private sector setting, it's the government sector. So let's move to the tougher case of government involvement in these decisions acting in our self-interest in a paternalistic way. Okay, so let, let's ter- let's turn to um, this. Will only be a small change. Let, let's turn to the research I did on the Swedish social security privatization. Very interesting. Tell us about that program to start with, and then what you found. It's a ve- I, it's a fascinating uh, story. So uh, in in the year 2000, when President Bush was running for president, uh, partly on a campaign of uh, a partial privatization of Social Security, Sweden was busy uh, adopting something very similar to what uh, Bush was proposing, namely uh, a 2.5% payroll tax that would be directed into a system of individual accounts. And um, so the design of this system, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Bush plan was there were never any details revealed almost right up until the up until the point at which it died, the proposal died. But it was a real trial balloon. It never got much air in it. Well, right. it was a bizarre... uh, I mean, you could, there, there turned out to be a, a specific proposal, but I think almost nobody knew what it was. Right. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But so in, in Sweden, they actually launched the thing so we can see how they did it. And they adopted 
an approach that I would think uh, you would greatly approve of because it was a really uh, a, a pro-choice free market ap- uh, approach. Um, people were allowed to uh, direct their own portfolios and uh, any fund that met certain fiduciary responsibilities was allowed in. They were allowed to charge whatever they wanted. Funds were allowed to advertise. There was the biggest advertising campaign in Swedish history in an attempt to uh, get money into these funds. And um, now this system got them 456 funds in the, in the plan. Uh, that number has now grown to over 600. Now there was a default fund that they picked, uh, which they more or less had to, uh, that you could have had a system where people were forced to pick on their own, but I think they were worried that uh, some people wouldn't return the form and then what would happen to their contribution. In any case, they, they picked a default fund, and I think most economists would agree that they did a very good job of that. The the fund uh, had very low fees. It was uh, um, uh, well diversified. The 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 fees in this fund were only 16 basis points, which is uh, so that's 16 percent of one percent. Um, and uh, altogether, it looked terrific. I personally would have been happy to invest in that fund. Um, who 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 managed that fund? Were these private? Were these 456 all privately managed? All privately managed, and this was privately managed. The, but they had competitive bidding to manage the components of it. So presumably, some bureaucrat or bureaucrats decided on the asset allocation, and then they had competitive bidding. So very clever. Uh, the U.S., I, I believe all of the investing in the U.S. was done with index funds. Um, with even a little, there's a little hedge fund exposure, a little bit of uh, venture capital exposure. Uh, and even with those components, it was only 16 basis points, which is surely lower than uh, you or I pay on our um uh, on our retirement. Just, just to clarify, this this Swedish fund available to Swedish citizens had some investments in the U.S. assets, in hedge funds, along with other international assets, Swedish assets, et cetera. Correct. Correct. And, and I think it was was it eighty two percent equity? Over ninety like percent. Uh, in the I default, think I think it was something like that. Was over ninety percent equity. That was pretty much a policy decision that was based on the idea that. Most of the Social Security benefits were defined benefit and was like fixed income. And the thought was, this was the part of their portfolio people should have in equities. And the rest, which was much bigger, uh, would be uh, uh, like the the fixed income. Mm -hmm. So now we can... They also did something interesting, which is... They launched a big advertising campaign, that they being the government, launched a big advertising campaign discouraging people from taking the default fund and saying, it's your Swedish duty to choose for yourself. 
and they published a book that had all the information one would want about all the funds and encouraged people to choose a portfolio for themselves. They could pick up to uh, four or five funds. And so uh, I wrote a paper on this with a Swedish graduate student of mine named Henrik Konkvist. And uh, what we did is we compared the investments people made on their own to the investment in this default fund. And the investments people made on their own had much higher fees, much more poorly diversified. Half of the money they invested was in Swedish stocks. Uh, this we call in finance the home bias. People have a tendency to invest in their home country. Sweden has about 1% of uh, world uh, product, and 1% of the assets in principle should go into Swedish stocks, but they put half of it into Swedish stocks. And um, because this was launched in 2000, um, there was also a heavy tech component in what people what people purchased. Not surprisingly, they purchased funds that had been doing very well in the past, and um, not surprisingly, those funds did extremely poorly um, after the thing got launched. The average investor lost 40% of their money in the first three years. Okay, keep going. Well, so uh, what would a libertarian paternalist do with this <laughs> proposal? Uh, my only real complaint is that they discouraged people from electing the default. If they had done everything exactly the same way, but said, uh, look, if you're not sure what to do, uh, you know, in Sweden we have access to lots of really good economists, uh, all the ones who want Nobel Prizes come and give talks here. <laughs> So we uh, we have we've designed a pretty good fund, and if you have any doubts, you might take that one. Now that that would uh, that would be fine. Now we have a sense of what would have happened under that because we've been monitoring what young workers are doing now as they newly enroll in the system, mm -hmm. and over ninety percent are electing the default fund. Now. Partly maybe because it's done so well, but uh, partly part, maybe because of the status quo bias. Uh, that's right, or, or for lots of other reasons. The advertising campaign trying to convince people to choose for themselves has stopped. So for lots of reasons, people are doing that. It it looks like, it, my guess is, and we'll, we'll never know, but my guess is that if they had launched this without the big advertising campaign, well over 80% of the money would have gone into the default fund. And one can even ask whether it would make any sense to have choices at all in that fund. And um, the reason why one would ask that is it's quite costly to administer a system with so many choices. And since this is a small portion of everyone's portfolio, there's no reason why people couldn't alter their asset allocations elsewhere. But 
I'm I'm not pushing that very hard. Uh, I I will say the following that uh, the Bush administration seems to have paid some attention to this experience because in 2005, when the privatization plan uh, proposal resurfaced, the number of options was going to be a number like five or six. Yeah, I remember that. So I I think the lesson was learned. Now, the lesson was not learned in the prescription drug program. Now, you know, I suspect that you're not a fan of the prescription drug benefit, but, uh, you know, let's not argue about that. I'm I'm not either. Um, But, uh, you know, we behavioral economists are interested in design features. And uh, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. <laughs> now, why? It's well, too complicated. Yeah. Uh, it, they, they, the most important thing they were concerned with is maximizing choice. So there are forty to sixty options in each state. They differ by state. And now, here's something amusing that most people don't know: if you are, if you were on Medicaid, and you, there was a prescription drug program there. You were forced to switch to Medicare. Um, if you didn't choose for yourself, they would put you into one. And you know how they did it? I'm going to guess and say randomly. Correct. I'm. Well, that's because I don't have as much faith in those uh, government officials' benevolence as you do. What you're, <laughs> what you're trying to do? No, is, no, they're doing just what you'd want. They're being principled libertarian and not choosing for people. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, I think I, I want to come back to the, uh, to the I, pension. You, no, let, let me just respond to that, sure. which is it's not possible to have less faith in government officials, particularly the ones we've been dealing with for the last six years, than I have. There, there's absolutely nothing in anything I've written that would suggest that I want... Uh, governments to do more than they do now, or that I think that they're uh, p- particularly competent. So there, why? So w- then, what why? would what would make you think I think that? Because the whole theme of your of of this um, this paradigm is that government officials often have to choose something. Just let me know if I'm being fair to you. Government officials have to choose something that inevitably will have consequences for how people behave. So what so they far, should so good. right good. So what they should do is choose since they have to affect my incentives and and my uh, status quo and my default. They should choose in a way that that takes care of my self interest. But since I don't have much faith in their interest in serving my self interest, so and, and and I don't okay. have much faith in their knowledge of my self interest. Why would I want to push that idea? Well, what would you what would you charge them with doing? Well, I'd get them out of the business that they're in. Well, me... but you, we can't. Why not? Well, let's I'm... go to the Swedish case. Let's take the Swedish case. And I, okay. I, want, I want to come back to that because it's so interesting. You make very interesting case. They gave a lot of choice. Turned out maybe people made some bad choices. I'm sure they did. Uh, they foolishly opted away from the default sometimes because of this advertising campaign or for other reasons. And or self, you know, hubris, 
and they foolishly chose some plans that were awful. You're recommending they should there should be one plan. No, yeah. sorry, sorry, careful. You said that wouldn't have been so bad. Maybe that's not the best thing, but certainly less choice would have been better. And that the Bush administration's movement towards five or six choices is better than the, the, the plethora we're faced with. Right. And I, I would say two things to that. One, I would ask, why is it that our private employers, when giving us choices for our pension plans, give us so many choices, if indeed our self-interest is really to be restricted, as you suggest? And secondly, wouldn't it be better to get the government out of the pension business and let, let the private sector and individuals make their own choices? Wouldn't well, that be better? Okay, so let, let's, uh, let's answer those uh, in order. The first is that in the, in the private sector, what we're seeing is retrenchment. So there has been pre- – the number of funds in plans has been growing. And uh, plan sponsors and 401k administrators have been realizing that the number of options is probably too big. And uh, how do we know that? Well, there's research that the more options there are, the longer it takes for people to get around to signing up because uh, there's some paralysis. And the more options there are, the more people that elect to put all their money into a money market account because they're so flustered that they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And what we're going to see, in part because of a, a provision in the new pension bill that uh, I helped in some ways uh, get through, is that uh, companies will be offering uh better default options, more advice, and uh, more and more people will elect those. So much like uh, what I would have liked to see in the Swedish plan, which is offer as many options you want, but have a simple way for the unsophisticated people to elect something good. I just worry that that default plan will be subject to public choice issues of pressure from well, this group we're, or that. Well, we're talking about private sector so far. Uh, but then why is why were you talking? I'm sorry, I misunderstood. Oh, because what the, bill were you talking about then? The pension the pension bill it has um, made it easier for companies to offer good default plans. Uh, be, by giving safe harbor so that they don't get sued by somebody if they default them into something that goes down. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, so that because people have a a tendency to go for the default, these companies were afraid to offer a, a strong default option because of that worry. Right. Oh, so that, oh that's okay. Okay, that's interesting. And the the Labor Department, the problem in the Labor Department that I referred to is that uh, the Labor Department has been unwilling to say anything that has any risk of going down is prudent. Yeah, well, that's because they're risk-averse politically, uh, well, just, uh, like, right. just like the designers of that awful uh, prescription drug benefit. I think they were worried that if they only had a limited number of choices, they'd be accused of being socialists or, or piling, you know, 
right. helping this group or that group. And so they offered this bewildering array, and it was it was yeah, it wasn't very successful. So, but I mean, I, it seems to me that your claim that well, look, we just ought to get the government out of this is completely unrealistic. I mean, we that there are some things the government does. We can have them do it well or poorly. And I think we're all interested in improving the services that the government provides in the sectors where they provide it. And remember that half of our term is libertarian. And right we're we're not interested in the government making decisions for people we're interested in ha- having the government help unsophisticated people make better decisions without restricting the freedom of people who are informed or who are mistakenly think they're informed to choose for themselves well, i'd prefer a different approach let me um let me try something different and see if this gets closer to a more realistic argument I'd argue that people are very heterogeneous, a point you recognize in your paper. You worry about this, and I I think you're absolutely right. People are heterogeneous. So the default that's a, that's good for one type of person might not be the ideal default for another. Uh, people have a lot more information about their own situation than any corporate manager, you know, HR manager or government employee or agency head could have. That's and, an empirical question, by the way. Which, Let's come back to that. Agreed. I accept that. I, I understand, and I, and I you've, you have some interesting things to say about it. Maybe maybe, maybe you'll have a chance to say them uh, in this in this podcast. It's a little off the track, but it's very interesting. Um, so I want to I'm making the claim that that most that individuals have more knowledge of what's in their own self interest than than others do, and these default solutions this is a, they're one size fits all. Not so, necessarily. Okay, why not? So, for example, in the 401k world. The most common new defaults are what's called time dated. So there, uh, you pick a fund that's based on your age. Good idea. So that's a start. That's a start. Yeah, and no, that's interesting. Uh, and there are also what they call uh, lifestyle funds that you pick a fund based on your risk preferences. So there are three funds, and they're just low, medium, and high risk. Mm-hmm. That's probably as much insight as 90% of the participants have about their own preferences. Might be 95. I think we're on the same same side here. So this is just not a fatal flaw. There's no reason that smart defaults need to... Uh, worry about that, and that's precisely what the problem that the prescription drug program—they they didn't make give offer any help to people in trying to figure out which of these fifty plans would be best for them. Well, again, I certainly agree with you in the case of of private pension plans, and and the array of choices were given. I mean, I, we haven't talked about this, but certainly I think it's good that the that the uh, and there there are these economies of scale issues you talked about in the case of. Uh, of automobile manufacturers, they always include most of them, not all of them, but almost all of them include a back seat. It, it's not an option, right? You, you just you get one. Right. That's what most people want. It's cheaper that way. And there are other things that are options. You can there are add-ons, etc. So in the private sector, I, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with them. You know, the Model T was a very clever idea. It was you know it was, it was the default. There weren't any options. 
those are all recognitions by the marketplace that we often do have trouble making choices, that sometimes too much choice is paralyzing or for whatever reason we make the wrong choice. And so there are market incentives for people to be helped in all kinds of ways. The tougher issue, the one we, which we're stuck on here, which, which I want to uh, probe, is this issue of government involvement. You said, well, it's unrealistic to, to say the government should be, shouldn't be in the, in the retirement business. It is unrealistic. I agree. Uh, I think we've come a long way toward a more private, voluntary retirement than, than world than we were 25, 30 years ago, but we're still not very close to it. Uh, but, but you as an advocate, you as a social scientist, you as a, as I, as a caring, benevolent person in, in most settings, I assume, why would you want to push for government to have the power to offer that default in that setting? Why wouldn't you push in the other direction to offer more choice, more heterogeneity, and encourage people then to go out and get some help? Why would you want to give the government, with all those uh, incentives that they face, which are not yours? I think you're probably a really nice guy. I don't know you very well, but you seem like a nice guy who really would give me good advice about my portfolio. But why would you assume Coming back to this question about the Medicare benefit, why would you want to push the government in that direction, given that they do it seem to do it rather poorly? Well, no, no. I mean, what what's the alternative? They've launched that plan for better or for worse. That plan wasn't your idea or my idea, right? What I do is give people advice about how to organize things they're doing. So. The, the government, the Bush administration, decided to have a prescription drug benefit. They had asked me how to do it. I would have said have fewer choices and have sensible either defaults or guided choices to help people pick a plan that's best for them. That's all. Well, maybe that's we, libertarian paternalism. So maybe we found uh, an area of agreement here. So we're saying that – I don't think there's any disagreement. I think that your disagreements are all imaginary because you can't get around the fact that we're not forcing people to do anything. No, that part's not what bothers me. Uh, I, can, I, can get, I can get around that. I think the problem I have, for example, in this case of, say, the, the Medicare uh, plan – is the is the very notion that somehow uh, in a world of tens of millions of seniors, the idea that the government should choose a default plan that is in the best interest of seniors is a uh, that is an illusion. No, no, but now you're falling into the trap of thinking there's one. Okay, pick ten, pick twenty, well, pick, it by, pick, 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 pick it by age, pick it by pick it by pick by age. Look, they can have the 50 that they have and and then have a simple way of uh, guiding you based on your age and health experience and what drugs you're on. But they they just didn't want to go down that path. They could they set up websites, but they made it very complicated and there's other things that we don't want to get into the details of that because the formularies are stochastic it's, they've made the problem extremely difficult, but but the, the the point is that they could have made it in a way that will make it easier for people to make good choices. That's all I'm about. That's it. Okay. Well, I, I think we agree that when government is in an area, whether it belongs there or not, 
it would be nice if they tried to make their involvement in our lives as beneficial as possible. That, then, uh, then you're ready to join the Libertarian Paternalism Party. I don't know. I sense a little more enthusiasm in in your papers, but maybe I'm being maybe I'm being. I don't, I don't think you know. Reread them. Okay. I don't see where you'll find us expressing any enthusiasm. Okay. Well, let's, I want to turn to one more issue that you brought up in one of these the papers we're talking about that I found so interesting, and it it refers back to another podcast we did with another colleague of yours, uh, Richard Epstein. Uh, you talk in one of the papers about the uh, market for organ donations Mm -hmm. and the opt-in, opt-out differences between the United States and Europe. Could you talk briefly about that? Well, as you know, in the U.S., to uh, volunteer to allow your organs to be harvested, uh, you have to take some action. Typically, it's to sign the back of your driver's license and get two witnesses to sign it and so forth and so on. Uh, I invite people to look at their driver's license and see whether they've signed it. Um, it, So that's an opt-in system. In many European countries, they've adopted an opt-out system, so uh, sometimes called presumed consent, that you're presumed to have given your consent to have your organs harvested unless you've signed the back of your driver's license or some equivalent. Now, not surprisingly, uh, many more people agree to have their organs harvested under an opt-out system than an opt-in system. It's a dramatic difference. Do you have the numbers handy? Because those are very interesting. Uh, Well, it's a dramatic difference in willingness at that step. This is not a panacea because in order to harvest the organs, there are a lot of other things you have to do. You have to have infrastructure. But... I mean, more than 90% of people agree under an opt-out system to allow their organs to be harvested. In Europe. In in those countries in Europe. And Spain turns out to be the country that's best at harvesting organs, and this is one of many things they do. But in the United States, where you have to opt in and, and take an action to give away your, your kidney, um... The, then uh, the, uh, there we're not getting as many organs as we could. And not just as many, but the, the, the number of people who, who are at least willing to have them be harvested is, is dramatically lower. Correct. Correct. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting example, and I think it's, um, as you point out, it's not a cultural difference. It's just the institutional structure, the incentives. Would you advocate a move in the United States toward a, an opt-out instead of an opt-in? Yeah, although I think in this domain, the choice that I would prefer is um, what we might call required choice. Um, So I think the proposal I would favor is when you get a driver's license, you must check one of those two boxes. And um, I think the reason for that is just that this is a emotionally charged issue and I think that the uh, that system might be politically more acceptable yeah that's a very uh, a lot of things come into play there uh, I think even if the European system did systematically generate more organ donations a lot of people I think would be uncomfortable with it 
philosophically, just as they are uncomfortable with what I think is the best system, which is a, a market solution where people can buy and sell organs. People are squeamish about that for emotional and philosophical reasons. Even if you could convince them that it'll lead to more kidneys and more lives saved, they still might not favor it. And similarly, I think the idea that the government owns your your kidney and unless you claim it back uh, would make some people uneasy. Uh, and doing it in front of a clerk is a weird thing. It, it, there's, as you say, there's something emotional about it. It's, it's highly charged. It's a very um, it's a very thought provoking uh, policy issue. So yeah, so I think uh, my proposal there would be the required choice, um, and that seems to protect everyone's rights. And I believe it would uh, produce more organs. But again, this is just another example where um, the government has to choose some rules, and we think that they should think systematically about which rules are going to make society better off. Yeah, the, the problem is better off is hard to define. Uh, there is no interest of society. We are all, we're all different. I think probably that's where uh, we part company in, in terms of my chances of becoming a libertarian paternalist. Um, when we say things like government should act benevolently or beneficially or in our self-interest, there's no we, and so it's often hard to define. I like the idea of multiple defaults. That's a good way to head in the right direction. Oh, no, but I'm not letting you off that easy. Okay. Uh, if governments aren't going to act in what they judge to be the best interests of the c- citizens, I don't think they do. What should they do? I mean, well, what they should do and what they actually do are two different things. No, no, but we're we're only arguing about what charge to give them. Now, you may say it's difficult or that they are incompetent, and I would agree with both of those. But the question is, should should they pick things at random? Well, this that that or, or I mean, what we argue at the end of our paper is that we see no alternative to libertarian paternalism unless it's what we call benign or no, what we call inept neglect. It'll be the random or whatever. Well, so I mean, you could try to pick things that will make people worse off. Well, you're talking about what government should do. That's it. But it isn't what government government does. So if you're talking about – I think you're talking about proselytizing government to act in a way that would be more in line with what it could be, then that's that's an interesting idea. Uh, I don't believe in proselytizing government. I think that's a false – strategy to think of ask what should government do because that's like asking well, aren't you proselytizing government to shrink no i'm proselytizing my fellow citizens from time to time in my personal uh, philosophical meanderings uh, i'm i'm i encourage my friends and family and 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 anyone else who wants to listen that it's good for government to be smaller than it is now and i hope perhaps unrealistically that those preferences will sometimes be translated into political reality but I wouldn't want to proselytize my friends to encourage government to be kind to us or good to us because that's like encouraging pigs to fly. It's not in their choice set. It's not in their toolkit. Well, Do you think it is? Would, would you want to, if you had an hour with President Bush, would you want to encourage him to be a better person? It'd be a waste of time. He is, what, would, he is what he is. He faces the constraints he faces. No, but I, I think that. Um 
I, I think, look, I think it was easy to influence the Bush administration to make their Social Security privatization plan better. And that's what we economists always do when we're advising governments on the design of policies. And, you know, I think that there are lots of ways, there's lots of ways of improving the response to Katrina. There's lots of ways of improving the prescription drug program. There's lots of ways of improving everything that the government does. And just to throw up your hands and say they're a bunch of dumb crooks isn't very helpful. But if you're not careful in your desire to make them more effective, you'll miss out on solutions where if they would step aside, we'd have a better solution. Why? Because I think, for example, that in the case of of aid to hurricane victims or 9-11 victims or all kinds of things like that, the political influences on government are uh, not very healthy, don't work very well, and private solutions would be more effective. Well, then let's encourage those. Uh, there's there's no either or here. And whatever the private sector solutions are, they would benefit by the same tools that we're talking about. We're, we're well, I agree e- with that. We're equal opportunity <laughs> here. And most of what we're pushing for is aimed at the private sector. But uh, we think the government could use our help as much as anybody. Well, we're, we're together on the private part, that these insights are very useful. And, and I think they're useful for for our listeners to think about their own behavior, where we have uh, faults or things we could improve. It's good to be aware of biases that we have, and uh, your work's been a very uh, enriching aspect of economics, and and, um, we're on the same side there. Okay. My guest today has been Richard Thaler, the Ralph and Dorothy Keller Distinguished Service Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics at the University of Chicago's Graduate School of Business. Now on to your emails. Pascal Bernard writes from Paris, France. Sir, as many other listeners, I really enjoy your podcast since it's not only interesting and insightful, but not as dry as most economic literature I'm treated to as a student. Unfortunately, I couldn't quite follow the conversation on baseball, the Moneyball podcast, because as a European, this game will forever remain a mystery to me. Nonetheless, I dare to propose two topics, which well might relate especially to my European context, but should be of some interest to Americans too. What has economics to say about government's duty, role, futility, etc., in trying to prevent or break up monopolies? The case of Microsoft comes to mind. Both the Department of Justice and the European Commission tried to change the firm's behavior in what was allegedly the consumer's interest. Is the remedy worse than market failure in the first place? Maybe you have some new unconventional insights into this problem. The second topic goes in the same direction. In France, the theme of patriotisme économique has become ever more fashionable. But this economic nationalism is, in fact, no stranger to the U.S. I guess I don't have to remind you of those daunting Chinese trying to buy one of your oil and gas companies or the bid, the Arab bid for some of your ports. These cases definitely are not market-efficient responses. But is there a link between a nationally-owned company, meaning not in foreigners' hands, and its employment policy, growth prospects for politicians, always purport to try to prevent jobs from being outsourced overseas in the wake of a foreign takeover? I'm looking forward to comments on these subjects. Pascal, thanks for your letter. You raised two very interesting areas for discussion. First, the effectiveness of antitrust policy, and second, 
the virtues or lack thereof when governments insist on economic nationalism, or as you so gracefully put it in what I assume is your native language, patriotisme économique. On antitrust, the question is whether the harm outweighs the benefit. A lot of people assume that antitrust is all benefit. They assume that competition is good and that antitrust policy advances competition. The first statement's true. Competition is good. But the second statement doesn't necessarily follow. Just because it's called antitrust doesn't mean it increases competition. It can often be used, and all government power is prone to this, it can often be used by the politically powerful to protect themselves from competition. Now, I'm afraid I don't have the unconventional insights you're looking for, but I'll try and find someone who does for a future podcast. On economic nationalism, let me give you one ironic historical example. In the early 1990s, there was a frontline documentary called Losing the War to Japan. The worry was that Japanese companies were coming into America and giving all the good jobs to their Japanese employees. Americans were stuck answering phones, teaching people how American companies like Nintendo, how their games worked. So in the early 1990s, Americans were worried about getting stuck with call center jobs because of foreign-owned companies. And today, Americans are worried about losing call center jobs to foreign-based companies. So there's always a tendency for the political uh, chaos around us to use these examples of economic nationalism to scare Americans about how a foreign company is going to steal our jobs or if it comes here, it's not going to give the best jobs to Americans or if a foreign company buys some American asset, they're going to use it in some sinister way. Now, I assume that foreign companies, whether in the United States or overseas, are trying to do the best they can. Most of them are in a very competitive uh, marketplace, and if they don't do the best they can, they're going to go out of business. Now, doing the best you can sometimes means hiring Americans, sometimes it means hiring foreigners, but it's hard to find any evidence that foreigners are buying up American assets or bringing their companies here to America in order to destroy the American economy and that they're sacrificing profits or competitiveness to do so. In general, it's good for assets and people to be employed in their highest valued use. Keeping out foreign companies rarely advances that goal, and economic nationalism is usually an excuse for advancing special interest cloaked in the disguise of patriotisme, or patriotism as we call it in America in English. Thanks for your letter, Pascal. Either of the topics you mentioned would make a good podcast in the future. As for baseball, you might try the novel Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella. It captures some of the romance of baseball without getting bogged down in the rules or strategies. I'd like to hear from you. If you have comments you'd like me to read on the air, please email me at mail at econtalk.org. Mail at econtalk.org. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Talk to you on Monday.